ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Barnflies, a podcast in which Shakespeare teaches us strategies for dealing with your friend who got way too drunk at that frat party at the age of 60. In this week's episode on Henry IV Part Two, we'll be discussing Weasley diplomacy, hookers with hearts of gold, and the looming inevitability of death. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is episode 18, The Crimes at Midnight. That villainous, abominable, misleader of youth! So, James, do you want to tell us what goes down in this play, which features multiple dens of iniquity, as well as the high courts and corridors of power? I dare say there may be dens of sin and iniquity, Will, but uh, we'll get to that. Yes, let me tell you about Henry IV, Part Two. So, after the stirring defeat of Henry Hotspur and his band of rebels in Henry IV, Part One. Prince Hal and John Falstaff continue on their merry but increasingly divergent ways, much to the consternation of an ailing King Henry. In two largely separate plot lines, the aging, fat, and perpetually drunk Falstaff, still Will's favorite character in Shakespeare, by the way, loiters around London with his cronies, including a page whom Hal has gifted to him as a joke. An inveterate conman and criminal, Falstaff weasels his way out of being arrested for a robbery, attempts to swindle the justice who sought his arrest, and enjoys the company of Dahl Tearsheet, a local prostitute. Will might even call her a local wench, in fact. When she asks Falstaff what he thinks of Hal, he makes light of the lad, only to be chagrined when Hal reveals himself as a disguised musician. Hal, for his part, has slid back into a dissolute life after a brief moment of heroism and maturity in Henry IV, Part I. Meanwhile, his father, the king, is quite worried about the survival of the realm, as a rebellion led by the Earl of Northumberland, Lord Mowbray, the Archbishop of York, and Hotspur's widow takes shape. Falstaff accepts a commission to raise soldiers to to help put down this rebellion, taking bribes from peasants who do not want to be drafted, and reminiscing about the good old days with his old pal Shallow along the way. Ultimately, the rebellion is put down via the tricks and machinations of Prince John of Lancaster, Hal's brother, who convinces the rebel leaders to disarm themselves and meet for parley, but then promptly arrests them during the meeting and sentences them to die. Meanwhile, Henry IV takes to his sickbed, reflecting on his life and appearing to die. Hal wanders in and, thinking that he is now king, takes the crown from his father and leaves the room, only for the elder Henry to awake and fall into a pit of despair at the idea that his son only cares about power and himself. But when Hal returns, the two finally reconcile, and Henry gives his formerly wayward son his blessing. Finally, after Henry IV really dies, Falstaff and Hal meet in London while Hal rides through the city as the new sovereign on his coronation day. Falstaff believes that now that his protege is king, he and his gang will enjoy special privileges, engage in all sorts of skullduggery at will, and enjoy the favor of the new king. But Hal rebukes the dejected Falstaff in a sign of maturity and, perhaps, political calculation. Coldly telling his old friend, I know thee not, old man, before banishing him. James, thank you for a fantastic overview of this disreputable tale full of personal growth, maturity, and one very funny, very fat, and uh, very rejected man. So, this play is in a slightly different place than Henry IV. Part one, in terms of its reflections and its structure. 
And my reaction to this when I was reading it was to really focus on the themes of age and regret. And there's a variety of different ways that those themes play out in the story. You know, you have Falstaff, you've got Henry IV himself, and you have Hal. I was wondering, what did you take away from this sort of theme of age and people that are growing up or not growing up? Uh, what sort of stood out to you of the characters and the various journeys that they went on? Well, well, I think it kind of falls into two categories a little bit, right? There's the characters who are at the ends of their lives. Or I guess when I say that it really falls into two categories, I think it's there's a distinction here between Hal and where Hal is in his development. And for, for Hal, it's more a story of education and continuing the education that he was getting in Henry IV Part One, And then you have the characters of Falstaff and Henry IV, and I would say also Shallow, of characters who are not necessarily looking back at their lives. I don't know that Falstaff really is looking back on his life to the same degree that those other two characters are. Mm. But are nonetheless are, are grappling with aging and getting older. Now, a few things that pop into my mind as I'm thinking about it. I think even within that group of three, there's a pretty, to me, severe cleavage between Henry IV on the one hand. In fact, I guess I would even go so far as to say that each of those three is sort of representing a different a different type of thinking about aging, right? Like, mm. they're shallow who is, I would say in quite a funny and human way, is like looking back on his past and he's got a whole thing in, I think it's act two, before Falstaff shows up where he's, you know, looking back on his raucous youth and then when mm-hmm. Falstaff comes, you know, so Shallow and Falstaff seem to have been sort of drinking buddies in college, more or less, or, or you know, they were in the same frat, if you will. <laughs> you know, and Shallow's like looking back and then when Falstaff shows up, Falstaff sort of has this attitude of like, yeah, he, he thought he was, you know, he thought he was a big deal, but he, you know, he wasn't really, he wasn't really a partier. You know, I was the real partier. You know, that's sort of, <laughs> that's sort of the subject of, of that. So anyway, but Shallow, Shallow is looking back with this air of like remembering his youth and sort of remembering it with this rosy colored tint, right? Mm. Then there's... Falstaff, who actually I think, you know, Falstaff is grappling with aging, but it's, I think, in a form of denial. And I think we'll, we're going to talk more about this because, but my read on the whole Falstaff character going with that frat metaphor is that like Falstaff is like the 30 year old hanging out at his college frat party, hitting on the 21 year olds. You yes. know what I mean? Yes. Where it's like, yeah, maybe you can get away with that when you're, you know, when you just graduated or, you know, or you're, two years out and you're like you're coming back but by the time you're 30 it's like you really should know better the obvious analog here is at a slightly different age level but you start feeling that way when there's like the guy who never left your hometown and still hangs out with high schoolers Mm -hmm. when they're like 20 or something like that and it reminds me of the matthew mcconaughey character uh, wooderson in dazed and confused you know where he says that's what i like about these high so you're a freshman right yeah so tell me, man, how's this year's crop of freshman chicks look? <laughs> what, you gonna end up in jail sometime really soon? I know that. But No, man. Yeah. No, man, I tell you. Yeah. That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs>
I get older and they stay the same age. And there's a certain element of that with Falstaff where you're like, ooh, it's a little bit unseemly. You're a grown man. You're probably well into your 50s, you know, if not possibly older at this point. And it's just grotesque to watch. Now, it's quite funny in point of fact, and there's some great jokes and some good lines in the play related to Falstaff and his foibles, but there's something kind of pathetic about it. Yeah, and, and I think he even seems to be aware of it, or, or or his behavior or misbehavior almost does at points seem to me like it grows out of almost like a depression. Like mm-hmm. there's that scene where he says, I am old, I am old, thou will forget me when I'm gone. You know, and he's sort of in his cups and moaning about growing old. Yes. But that's not his normal, like, mode of representing himself, right? But, and also, in fact, with Falstaff, what's, you know, something I find interesting about him is that despite the fact that he is old and everyone's pointing out that he's old, he is actually quite optimistic about the future or represents, you know, he's still thinking about what's going to happen in the future. And that sort of plays into his attitude towards Hal, right? Yes. Well, and, and up until and then, his rejection, basically, right? There's yeah, a certain exactly. degree of optimism, and they think it's going to be a thief's paradise, essentially, under Hal's leadership when he becomes king, and yeah. that does not happen, obviously. Yeah. And then finally, you have Henry the Fourth, And so I was thinking about this as I was prepping to record, where, you know, we had a long conversation when we did the Richard Third pod about the regret of the characters in that play of Clarence and Edward in particular, and some of the other characters as well, but those two, I think most specifically, and how like they were looking back and they were full of regrets because they knew that they were morally compromised. And Henry IV in this play, there's a similar dynamic in like looking back on what he's done and taking stock of his life. But the regret or the disappointment that he seems to manifest doesn't seem to me, at least, and I'm interested to hear if you agree with this, but doesn't seem to me to be that sort of moral disappointment, right? It doesn't seem to me that he's disappointed in himself because he feels like he's gotten where he's come by behaving in ways that are morally wrong. Though there is a little bit of, of that to it, but it's more with him that things were more difficult and more of a strain. And, you know, and what you really get with Henry IV is the stress of leadership. And so his like regret and looking back, I think, is more taking stock of of the yes. fact that things didn't work out the way that he wanted them to. What do you think about all that? So I think that there's certainly something to be said about Henry the Fourth looking back and feeling dissatisfied on the state of the realm. And yes, he obtained the throne. He did govern more wisely in most respects, at least so far as we can tell from the plays, than Richard II. I mean, he dies as king and passes it on to his son, and he's not as widely reviled as Richard was. I think where his death scene and the moments of his sort of reflection are interesting to me is that it's it's a threefold series of, of regret and disappointment and frustration. Uh, so the first is that Hal is still hanging out with these low lives, and that's the sort of immediate disappointment that his son is perhaps not fit to rule, and he's questioning that, right? Then uh, that, you know, becomes, you know, obviously he, he overcomes that and Hal rises in his estimation. But there's also the element of 
Hal taking the crown after he appears to die and disappearing with it. And I think that actually sort of tells you something about Henry and what his reign has been like, right? He is worried about the future because Mm -hmm. he's dealt with nonstop conspiracies and civil war off and on for years, right? And part of that's a function of how he obtained the throne in the first place, by engineering essentially a coup against Richard II, uh, and then, you know, killing him. So there's a degree of recognition, I think, that Mm -hmm. to live by the sword, you may not die by the sword, but it definitely does not guarantee a peaceful reign. And you're not going to get to do the things that you maybe wanted to do because you're so focused on holding on to power. And the the corollary of that is when Hal takes his crown, Henry IV has spent so much time being the politician Mm -hmm. that holds the kingdom together with bailing wire and duct tape and chewing gum that it's very difficult for him to just have a relationship with someone, including his own son, where there's actual trust and he doesn't have to be paranoid about ulterior motives. And I think that that's why, in some ways, that's such a blow to him until Hal comes back and demonstrates that he's not just seeking the kingship. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's actually the insight in those scenes that Henry is having. It's not so much regret about what he did to Richard, but it's about recognizing that being king makes it very, very difficult for you to trust other people, and it means you're constantly focused on keeping power, and that's no way to live in many respects. Part of what he's looking back on is sort of the vagaries of fate and the way that nothing is permanent. And and when I say that nothing is permanent, I don't mean that I don't mean he's talking about it in the sense of like, oh, all things pass, but he's he's more talking about like the vicissitudes of ruling and the experiences that he's had, right? He has that whole wonderful speech where he's talking about how Northumberland and Richard were friends, and then Northumberland became, like, his sort of bulwark. His, I mean, i.e. Bolingbroke's, Henry IV's bulwark in, you know, establishing his rule, Mm -hmm. and then Northumberland revolted against him. You know, so he's uh, all, I think he's all just to your point, Mm -hmm. right, of how these things shift so fast, and he does have to be constantly reacting and on guard. And there is definitely a sense, I mean, right, Clarence says, the incessant care and labor of his mind hath wrought the muir that should confine it in so thin that life looks through and will break out, right? So there's definitely a sense that that Shakespeare, via Clarence at least, is advancing that Henry IV is dying because he's lived such a stressful life to some degree. Um, I, I did also want to, though, Will, uh, and this might drive us too far off topic, so, yes. you know, you can reject the, to- the the thesis if you want, but there was something interesting to me I, I found in Henry IV's musings about, you know, mm-hmm. his reign versus Hal's. He talks about, like, the unlikely way that he met the crown is the way that he very politically phrases his usurpation of Richard. Mm. But then there's also a sense that by (laughs) passing it on to Hal, right, Hal, if you're looking at things from the perspective of primogeniture as your ruling paradigm, then Hal is just as illegitimate as Henry IV, right? It's fruit of a poisonous tree. And yet, you know, what Henry IV points to is that Hal is not burdened by the same past that he himself is because he didn't execute those things Mm -hmm. but there's also somehow like the fact that the crown is coming to Hal via inheritance somehow legitimates it even though 
the crown was illegitimately gotten by Henry IV. I, what, what do you think about that? Well, it, it's an interesting point, though, because I think if you look at political history and the history of leadership, there's often a relatively ruthless figure that succeeds in changing the status quo. And sometimes they become beloved founding father of the nation at other points they might be seen as maybe a Bismarck-type character, right? Somebody that's looked back on as a political genius, but quite ruthless. And usually the people that follow in their wake tend to be perhaps less competent or skilled, and it all goes by the wayside. What's interesting in this case, and I'm grasping for maybe a historical analogy, but it actually gets better, as we'll learn in Henry V, under Hal in the sense that he becomes legitimate from other sources in some respects, but he also becomes beloved by the people in the court in a different way than his father Mm -hmm. ever could have been based on the way he attained the throne. And I do wonder about this in some countries where you might have particularly tyrannical or ruthless political figure, but when their protege comes in and their protege actually turns out to be a reformer or tends to have more of a human touch... They might not have been able to carry out those things mm-hmm. without somebody concentrating power beforehand and behaving in ruthless and generally ways that are frowned upon by observers. And that's that's an interesting dynamic that I think is in, in play yeah. here to some degree. So, Will, we talked a lot in the last play. We talked in our episode about Henry IV Part One about Falstaff's vivacious or vital philosophy, you know, what I would describe as sort of hedonist. I think you're a little bit more sympathetic to him than I am. The portrayal here of Falstaff seems to me to be more that of a man who has frittered away his life in not very productive ways. I don't know. Do you agree with that? Or do you think Shakespeare is going for something more sympathetic than that? Well, I think I think it's clearly his rejection by Hal is clearly meant to be poignant, I think. And you spend an incredible amount of time with Falstaff in this play where he is actually a central figure in one of the storylines, at times eclipsing Hal himself in terms of dialogue and... and oh, I mean, I would say, I would say so this I, play I, really I, is Falstaff's play. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, I think... And we'll get to sort of whether that works or not exactly. But the most poignant stuff in this one, I actually think does have to do with Falstaff's rejection by Hal, ultimately. Because Falstaff, yes, he's dissolute, he's gone to seed. I don't think you're meant to look at his behavior in the last play or this play as particularly admirable. Everything that you can say about the man, cowardly, gluttonous, lustful, and preapic, uh, you know, and so forth, all of that's true. He's not a tremendously admirable man, but... He is a sort of parallel father figure to Hal for, I think, a fairly clear reason, which is that he helped teach Hal about ordinary life, and he presented a counterpoint to your vainglorious maniacs in the vein of Hotspur, you know, the people that are so obsessed with honor that they don't necessarily know what life is for, or is at least partially about, which is not just concentrating political power. It's also having some sympathy for people that (laughs) want to have a chicken in the pot at the end of the day 
you know, a little bit of romance and wine and wine, women and song, all of that. I'm not saying that in and of itself that that is a tremendously virtuous or admirable thing for the man to embody. I do think you're supposed to judge him for being immature in a case of arrested development in some respects and also uh, venal and ridiculous. Can we talk for a moment actually about this, the rejection? I mean, the whole play is driving to the rejection of Falstaff, right? I think dramatically Shakespeare needs Falstaff to be rejected in this play. And, And we'll get, I think, a little bit more into that particular issue later on. But what do you make of this moment? You, you know, for instance, I was reading uh, the Harold Bloom essay on this play in Shakespeare, The Image of the Human. And of course, t- take that with not just a grain of salt, not even a, a salt shaker full of salt, but like a Mount Olympus sized tower of solid salt, because Harold Bloom is just completely obsessed with the character of Falstaff. Mm. Nonetheless, he views this as a really unnecessarily cruel thing that Hal does. I have to say, like, it is harsh. And and maybe we'll, you know, maybe we should play the whole rejection speech. I know thee not, old man. Fall to thy prayers. How ill white hairs become a fool and jester. I have long dreamed of such a kind of man. So surfeit swelled, so old, and so profane. But being awaked, I do despise my dream. Make less thy body hence, and more thy grace. Leave gormandizing. Know the grave doth cape for thee thrice wider than for other men. (laughs) Lie not to me with a fool-born jest. Presume not that I am the thing I was. For God doth know, so shall the world perceive. But I have turned away my former self. So will I those that kept me company. When thou dost hear I am as I have been, approach me, and thou shalt be as thou wast, the tutor and the feeder of my riots. Till then I banish thee on pain of death, as I have done the rest of my misleaders, not to come near our person by ten mile. For confidence of life I will allow you, but lack of means enforce you not to evil. And as we hear you do reform yourselves, we will, according to your strength and qualities, give you advancement. It is harsh, right? I know thee not, old man. It's, it is not kindly worded. However, we've all, I think, known a Falstaff, someone who is someone who might be fun to be around, but is not healthy for us to be around. And, you know, if that's true for us as private individuals, how much more true is that if you are the absolute monarch of a country, right? So, you know, I think the hand-wringing about the rejection of Falstaff is taken from a perspective of liking this character because he's funny and not from a perspective of, like, what does Hal actually need to do to be successful in his role and also to be healthy as an individual? So... I would reject some aspects of your premise and agree with others. I think it's necessary. I agree with you there. Rejecting Falstaff is necessary. And it is the dramatic moment, and it's a good moment, but it's also supposed to be a bittersweet moment. Where I disagree with you, and the reason it's bittersweet isn't just because this is an entertaining character. It's because he's imparted something valuable to Hal over the course of their friendship. And... 
I think it's something that's lessons about, as I was saying earlier, lessons about East Cheap are going to be useful for Hal when he becomes Henry V. It's easy to read this as a straightforward morality play, but I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I also don't think that Hal, even when he becomes Henry, is necessarily a good or especially virtuous person in that sense, right? So yes, of course, Falstaff is not the type of person that an absolute monarch should surround himself with, and some level of rejection is necessary. But this also points to a instrumental quality of Hal, where he throws away people that aren't useful to him in the moment. I'm not saying keep Falstaff at court or anything like that, but it's more symbolic, and I think it's Hal essentially asserting both for direct reasons that he can't have this guy around him anymore, but also about ascending and casting away the things of the past so he can engage in like sustained image management and revision as he takes on power. And that's necessary. But it's not actually entirely attractive, as we'll as we'll see. You know, when we so do you Henry think that if rather than callously rejecting Falstaff in this way, if he had instead like offered him a generous allowance to live on, that like that would have been more kind. Well, it certainly would because have been more that's kind. exactly what he does, I mean. I don't so know. Clear. Like he does, he does give him an allowance. Yeah, he does. He does. I mean, that certainly. I I don't know that. Um, you know, structurally, you need this moment. And I actually think that some degree of rebuke or rejection of Falstaff is necessary from Hal to Falstaff in some way, just to send mm-hmm. the signal, right? I think where I would dispute your characterization has more to do with treating Falstaff solely as a toxic person. Because I think he's not admirable or virtuous, but in the manner of a lot of confidants and people from other stages of your life that end up becoming hangers-on in political life or any aspect of life, basically, you do outgrow people. Hal has outgrown, now Henry V, has outgrown false Right, but it's, it's not uh, just... What I'm trying to get at isn't just about the political instrumentality of rejecting Falstaff. And, you know, and even I think there's a performative aspect of this, right? Like, you know, I think you could argue that as a politician, he has to be seen to publicly rebuke Falstaff, right? And like, yes. that's a way of, you know, it's a, a form of political theater in the type of what you're supposed to do as a politician and like political performance and like reassuring people like how you're going to rule that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, it, it absolutely does. And and again, it's, it's what, what, necessary. What? I just think that the way you were discussing it earlier sort of implied that Yes, Falstaff is a toxic presence in some way, but it's not like Hal slash Henry goes on and totally sheds all of his baser qualities. Uh, that's sure, not, but that's not something uh, no. But the other, sorry, but the, to be clear, the other thing you know, what I was trying to get at was not just about the political side of things, but also about how you know you can have extremely complicated and deep relationships with people who are nonetheless not good for you to be around or spend time with. And I mean, separately from the political considerations of what it looks like for Hal to be with Falstaff, I mean that you can have love for someone who is horrible for you. And I don't think it's that unreasonable to view Falstaff as 
bad for Hal in that way. Yes, I think that's true. I think I would only dispute that it's a one-way. Sure. It's a one-way relationship in that sense. I think that you know you don't you don't see it as much, but it's not as if uh, yes, Hal is not his best person or the highest aspiration, even though he's profited by his relationship with Falstaff in a variety of ways. But it's also possible that Hal is a bit toxic himself, right? And I think that that's one of the interesting things here, or at least the way you framed it initially. I would sort of question that a little bit because it. There's a level in which you can read this in which it is the boy becoming a man and rejecting the things of the past. And I do think that that is the central reading and an important one. But I also think that uh, it's not quite a straightforward morality play because we've spent enough time with Hal and will spend enough time with Henry. And we will see that his portrayal, his personal qualities are a bit more ambiguous even though he's definitely portrayed as a national hero, his qualities are a bit more ambiguous mm-hmm. and fraught. And so it's not as if rejecting Falstaff purges him of all of those right. things, right? There's a straightforward reading where it's like, oh, this is him growing up and he's going to be a just and virtuous ruler who is completely uh, has completely transcended this episode of the past with which it's just a misbegotten youth. Well, it's a misbegotten youth in some respects, but it's also a uh, a youth that he learned some lessons from that were important to his development. It's not as if the story ends so neatly, right? And I think that there's a tendency to read this scene, if you purge it of the sort of tragic aspect of it, which is not just the rejection of a friend, but how embracing a more cold-blooded approach to people in some respects— I think you'd be missing a portent of mm-hmm. the future and yeah. some of his behavior. So I think you can read it. You have to read it both ways. But I think that the dominant thing, of course, is he's rejecting somebody that he can't be around anymore for a variety of reasons. Like, it's not healthy, to your point. It's toxic in ver- in a variety of ways. It's politically bad for, for everyone, for the realm, for everyone but Falstaff and his flunkies, right? But it's also... Um, you can't necessarily rob it of the tragedy mm-hmm. of the moment. No, I, I think you're right, ways. Will. And I, so. I you know, you, and it's, I mean, it's it's part of probably the genius of Shakespeare in this moment, right? That the two things are both simultaneously true, right? That Falstaff has to be cast out by Henry for Henry's sake. And also it's incredibly harsh and sad for Falstaff. And like, yeah. that, that's why we read him. Yeah, no, that's that's right. It's a it is a powerful moment in a play that I would say, despite that the power of that moment and our discussion of it, is a little bit uneven structurally. And as we said, we spend a lot of time with Falstaff and not all that much time with Hal mm-hmm. over the course of this play, and certainly not all that much time, though he does have some some good lines with Henry the Fourth. You know, we get his deathbed scene, but uneasy lies of... the head that wears a crown. Will <laughs> yes, the classic yeah. line, right? But there's something interesting about this play, uh, not necessarily because of what's written in it, but how awkward reading it is, because you jump between these different settings again, but it feels a little less organic to me than Henry the Fourth Part One. And I wanted to get your reaction to that. And 
if you think about this play as the middle movie in the trilogy of Henry the Fourth Part One, Henry the Fourth Part Two, and Henry the Fifth, this is the middle movie that doesn't quite work. And I wanted to get your reaction to that mm-hmm. as somebody who worked in the business. So, so to speak. I, I have a few thoughts on this. So one, so this movie, this, this movie, this play to me feels like. Less like it's Henry the Fourth Part Two, and more like it's Henry the Fourth Part One Point Five. In a way, the story that Shakespeare wanted to tell about Henry the Fourth before he gets to Henry the Fifth feels like it's too big to be in one play, but also too small to be two plays. And so you have <laughs> to have this play to wrap up the things from Henry the Fourth Part One that couldn't fit in Henry the Fourth Part One. Or that thematically mm. didn't work in Harry the Fourth Part One, but like you do need to get to the rejection of Falstaff by Hal, right? Like that's a crucial dramatic moment. You yes. do have to wrap up the end of the rebellion and kill Henry the Fourth, or you know, not kill him, but have him die. So there's both these narrative and these thematic beats that need to happen, I think, in the structure of what mm-hmm. Shakespeare wanted to do with this yeah. that aren't really enough on their own to make a full play, a full meal, sort of. And I think, to me, mm. that's, like, the big weakness of this play, that it just doesn't it, it doesn't feel like it's a complete thought, in a way. Where, you know, yes. and, and I think there's some interesting things with that, you know, like, in, in a way, that's kind of cool, because it allows... And I think you see this in this middle movie thing, where, like, when you're unshackled from certain dramatic demands... When your dramatic demands and and narrative demands are so light, you actually have a lot more freedom to play around. And actually, I think in this play, some of the most interesting and most poignant stuff is when they're often like Gloucestershire or wherever it is with Shallow, and you have those scenes in the Mm. orchard or wherever it is. And and that stuff's like really interesting, and you're getting a different side of Shakespeare that you haven't gotten before in those scenes. At the same time... It feels like an appendage to Henry the Fourth Part One. Yeah, part, and part yeah. of the reason for that, I think, is like for all that Falstaff is such a beloved character, I feel like actually he's much less compelling in this play than in Part One, and I think, and the play in general is less compelling than than Part One, and I think a big reason for that is because in Part One you had Hotspur, Falstaff, and Hal who are all equally present, equally prominent characters. And I think a lot of like what's fascinating in that play is the interplay between what Hotspur represents and what Falstaff represents, and then Hal, not in the middle, like obviously he's not talking to Hotspur at all, right? But him in the middle, mm-hmm. thematically, philosophically, absorbing, seeing both these different sides, seeing the Hotspur type that his father wants him to be versus the Falstaff type that he has sort of been surrounding himself with or spending time with. And so I think the exchange of ideas and the opposition of ideas is one really, a really effective in that play, but also works both thematically and narratively. Like it's thematically significant, but also that theme or that set of themes drives the narrative. Uh, and and when you make it just yes. Falstaff, like yes, Shakespeare has found another way to go with it, and like he's doing this stuff about mortality and aging and all that, and like that stuff is interesting, but it doesn't have the same dynamism, I think of the oppositionality of the ideas in Henry IV Part One. Yeah, I agree. And a couple things as you were talking about the challenges of structuring this type of story and plotting out the arcs. So there's definitely less thematic unity. There's definitely less of a sort of perfect pairing of personality and character and the ideas they represent in this one. 
in some ways it's a character study. It's a very close character study of one or two people. And they, it, those portraits are great, even of Henry IV, certainly of Falstaff. You get great moments. But I kind of feel like there is a ceiling on what you can do with that alone and how good a piece of drama can really be if it's just a character study. And this is why I'm often a little skeptical of biopics, particularly ones where a famous actor dons a lot of makeup or prosthetics or learns an accent or changes their body type or so on and so forth to embody a particular Mm -hmm. character. And then it's supposed to be Oscar bait, right? Because there's sort of a cap on that. You're almost doing an impression of somebody in that case, and that's a biopic problem. But really the issue I want to I want to point out in the parallel here is often in those movies and in just character studies in general, where you're just tightly focused on a portrait of an individual, they can be profoundly insightful, but it doesn't use all of the tools in a dramatist's kit, basically. And I think there's kind of a cap on this type of movie where you can get a virtuosic performance of Falstaff by some actor. And I'm sure that would be a huge draw and people would love to go see it. But it does not have the strength of a more richly developed and carefully structured and profound Mm -hmm. story. And maybe this is my preference for things that are a little bit more historically sweeping, but that's also an issue here, right? Because... One almost gets the sense in part one, Shakespeare was trying to capture the history and he was adapting Holinshed and he was taking these battles and moments and personalities and trying to use them as the grist for the plot, essentially. And he got the other characters to slot into that, to tell the story of England, but also question of personal philosophy and also showed the characters as three-dimensional people. In this one, there's not all that much that really happens when you come right down to it. Yes, there's the death of the king, there's a rebellion, but it's kind of diffused relatively quickly via political machinations. And so by running out of the historical plot material, it's almost like Shakespeare tried to stuff it all into part one, found out that Falstaff was a popular character and he needed to wrap it up, and then didn't really have enough material for an actually exciting... Mm -hmm plot and didn't have enough of a a canvas to work with there so he does the character study and it's profound and i will say too you know on on going with the middle movie syndrome thing there are very successful middle movies the two obvious ones that pop into my head immediately are godfather Mm. part two and the dark knight right and empire strikes back of course actually also is, is another one of course yeah what all three of those movies share i think is that they move the direction of those stories in very different directions but also you know where most middle movies of trilogies end up feeling like oh it's a continuation of the story but it's not the end of the story yet so it's kind of some filler yeah but also like we're giving you more of what you liked before where whereas like those really successful ones i think find ways to you know, now you have your character who's established, and presumably in part one, you've brought that character to becoming something. You, you know, where you've you've now brought mm-hmm. them from being Michael Corleone, Vietnam War vet, to being Michael Corleone, godfather, inheritor of all the evil of his family. But then in part two, you're like, okay, now we're going to apotheosize that. And I think that's true in Dark Knight as well. You know, whereas in Empire Strikes Back, it's more like... 
we should we all felt great about how the empire lost you know how we beat the empire but now we're really going to show like what's really serious about this conflict you, you know right and that it doesn't always have a happy ending yeah. which is i think the triumph of yeah. empire even though it's also advancing things towards a denouement mm-hmm. but also interesting about that and uh, i feel obliged as a matter of professional necessity to say michael corleone was a, a korea vet just uh, land wars in asia got to get him straight in my profession otherwise you end up in all sorts of trouble but to that point and not to make an asinine correction uh, alone i was just gonna say it's interesting too because empire strikes back the first star wars movie it was intended to be a standalone if mm-hmm. i recall correctly it wasn't episode four. There was no episodic vision for it. Yes, Lucas had the story in his head, but he didn't know if he was going to get financing. And so it was just Star Wars. That was the, the title of the film. So it's interesting when he brought it back and did all of these things. And I wonder, given our errors of the era in which we live, in which everything is serialized and part of a broader expanded universe and is envisioned as kind of a franchise and not standalone work. In that case, whether you'd get the... Whether whether that's really possible, in a sense. Uh, and you see people just try and replicate the first movie in many mm-hmm. trilogies and, as you said, just give people what they want. Which also raises another issue and, and topic that uh, I know we've both thought about in our respective movie watching, and I'd be very curious to hear your take on. But there's an element of fan service in this one with Falstaff that I alluded to earlier. And... I wonder to what degree is fan service something that's appropriate to do in show business? How do you steer between it being part of the reason that people are coming to the movies or coming to your show and becoming a little bit self-indulgent? How do you navigate that? And how does that sort of fit into this discussion that we're having of, you know, middle? Well, yeah, I mean, I think what the problem is you have to give people what they want, but you also have to give them what they should want. (laughs) If you will. And actually, I would say, you know, I I would say Shakespeare probably does it decently well. Like he probably does walk that line okay in this play where, you know, where you're getting more of Fat Jack. You know, you're getting more of the fat old knight and he's Mm -hmm. making funny comments and he's, you know, sort of exposing the emptiness of the rhetoric of various characters and whatnot. But at the same time, he is planting these seeds of aging and depression and Falstaff knows that he's gone to seed basically he is introducing this idea of shallow and like looking back at Falstaff's youth Mm. so he is using it as an opportunity to introduce some new ideas but where I think it doesn't work is in that oppositionality right like and that's where the fan service comes in I think we're like the fan service element is we just want to see the thing that we enjoyed and you get that, but there's no new challenge, really. And I think that goes for the play as a whole. Yeah, It's not just with Falstaff. It's also like, this is not a very dramatic play, ultimately. And the reason that it's not a very dramatic play is that there is no Hotspur figure who is representing a different modality. I don't know if that really answers your question, mm-hmm. but... No, no, it's, it's good, because you're actually pointing to... This is not a bad play, I, I would say, but I don't think it really succeeds or reaches the heights of some of Shakespeare's other work, even in his more episodic storytelling. And I think it's important, as you pointed out, you do get some interesting work here and some really funny writing. 
certainly the number of jokes about Falstaff's virility or lack thereof. And I feel obliged to just uh, take a brief moment and read one of the funnier lines, uh, which is by Poins. Is it not strange that desire should so many years outlive performance? Which I definitely had a, had a hearty chuckle at. There's a lot of great moments. There's some good jokes. There's some profound elegiac thinking on the past. There's the powerful rejection of the person that you need to let go from the past because they're bad for you in a variety of ways. All of that's good stuff. But structurally, thematically, I think you point to like where you can run afoul of maybe spending a little too much time with just Fat Jack and with no counterpoint to him. Uh, I, I think that's a good insight. You know, it makes me wonder if Shallow could have been a like more of a counterpoint to Jack, you know, to more of a counterpoint to mm. Falstaff. Or if Shallow had gotten the better of Falstaff in some way rather than like sort of seeking the approval of Falstaff, you know, which I think is sort of the way it plays out in this play. Yeah. But instead, Falstaff is allowed to make fun of Shallow and steal his money. Right. And, and right. so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I guess, you know, and maybe, you know, if, if you want to talk about the thematic unity of the play, maybe that's what Shakespeare is going for, and that's how the rebuke of Falstaff is supposed to land, and it just doesn't play. Maybe this is actually mm. kind of a failure of Shakespeare's in that regard. I don't know. I don't feel like I can say with certainty which perspective Shakespeare is more in agreement with or more wants you to endorse in Henry IV Part One, but I think I do know mm. what questions he wants you to ask and i'm not sure what those questions are in this play yeah i think that's fair so with that in mind james where do you put this one uh how do we rack and stack it i uh, look it's definitely not in the top tier for me i would say to your point earlier there's some really really interesting stuff and good stuff in this play but it's pretty uneven, I think. It's good moments, not great drama, if that makes sense. Mm. Which actually yes. puts me in mind of another history play in this very tetralogy, Richard II, which mm. I thought was fascinating ideas, like very interesting to think about as philosophy, not great drama. And so that's sort yeah. of where I'm anchoring this one. And, and to me, I think it's probably in the end not as successful as Richard II. I think I enjoyed what Richard II made me think about and the ideas in that play more than I enjoyed this one, but still better than what it will now go above Henry VI Part One, which I think is definitely, you know, I think there is a, a, a pretty immediate drop-off between this play and Henry VI Part One. What do you think? So uh, I actually have similar conclusions. So for me, I think it doesn't quite work as well as Richard II, even though I think there are some moments that are better than aspects of Richard II. It's tough because you got the John of God speech and a few of uh, Richard's lines that are really good in that. But I think it's probably less successful in my mind than Richard II. And even though I would say I would be perfectly happy and would be more likely to reach for Henry VI Part One. If we were to reduce and transform all of these plays into DVDs on my shelf or theatrical performances that 
when theaters are open one day uh, that we can go back and see. I'd rather see Henry VI Part One for pure entertainment, but I think this play is probably better than that in, in the final analysis. So for me, it's above Midsummer Night's Dream in my ranking, but below Richard II. All right, II. and uh, what would you say for the MVP of this one? It's kind of hard to get away from Falstaff, so yeah, I'm going to say on this one, again. on this one, I'll, I have to agree with you. I, I mean, he's just so dominant in the plays. I, I mean, I think he has more than twice as many lines as anyone else. So Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, Will, before um, we go, do you have anything you have been reading or watching that you want to recommend to our listeners? Yes, I've been reading a few different things, as is my want, but I picked up Dune. I've never read Dune. I'm preparing myself for the new adaptation by... Uh, Denis. Dennis, uh, Denis Villeneuve. Denis, sorry, I forget. He's French-Canadian, right? Denis Villeneuve. So I'm, I'm preparing myself for that piece of cinema, and I also have to watch the David Lynch version at some point so I can I can prepare I myself again the for, for another take on it. Well, yes, Sting and Kyle MacLachlan, who I actually quite like, but I love me some David Lynch. This one looks like an epic, epic train wreck, though I've heard that on repeated viewing and with the benefit of hindsight, many people are saying that it's actually not quite Sources bad say. as people thought at the time. Sources say, many people are saying... But yeah, I, I, I am enjoying Dune. It's not something I could categorically recommend to every single person to go out and read and their life won't be fulfilled if they don't read it. I certainly have gone 32 years without reading it, and it's not like a game changer for me in the annals of sci-fi, personally. It doesn't make it into my pantheon. But I am enjoying it, and as an exercise of sheer world building, it's pretty damned interesting, I have to say. And it doesn't surprise me that people have tried, and in some cases tried and failed, in interesting ways to adapt it to the screen. Tell us the recommendation one more time. So that is Frank Herbert's Dune. And that's our show. Next time on Bard Flies, the battle of the sexes heats up in Much Ado About Nothing. Thanks for tuning in to Bard Flies. If you like the show... Please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.